Today we will get the big picture of Zechariah. Let's pray before we uh, get into this wonderful little book, or I say big book. Anyway, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the living word. And we thank you for the written word. We're thankful that uh, we, we know that a book like Zechariah is inspired by you, and it's trustworthy, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces even into our souls and, and divides. And we pray that it would do its mighty work in our lives today. May you uh, control us, use us, give us ears to hear, hearts that, are, that, are, that, are, that are, have, have good ground to receive your word, that will have deep roots. May we not just be hearers of the word today, but doers as well. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Incline our hearts to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we get the big picture of Zechariah today, as I often do, I want to start with a question. Have you ever made a stupid or wrong decision? Well, I can raise my hand and I can say I have many times made a stupid and wrong decision. Many times. Certainly done that. I can wear that (laughs) t-shirt. And because I have made wrong decisions and done stupid things all of my life, I I, I come to this book and, and and I'm deeply interested in what this book has to say. I'm deeply interested in second chances because... I need second chances because I've blown the first chance many, many times. And I, well, how about you? I I assume you're like me and you've made wrong decisions in your life. And if you are like me, maybe you find yourself wanting some way to make up for those decisions. Maybe you want even, you would love to maybe go on a time machine and go back and somehow even, even totally erase that, that stupid thing you did or that wrong decision you made? Are there situations in, at work in your life or at home, situations at school or church that you've just, you've, you've simply blown it? Have you failed in your relationships or in your family life? Has a precious opportunity come into your life and gone and you didn't use it maybe as God wanted you to, and you recognize that? Have you spoken maybe words that appear to be forever, have, have come and gone, and, and there is no opportunity of hope any longer to correct, or maybe to have said something you wish you would have said, or maybe you've said something you regret, and those words went out of your mouth, and there's no way you could ever bring them back? Well, let me take it a step further. I wonder how you feel about your relationship with God. We've talked about some questions about our relationship with people, but what about our relationship with God? Do you feel similar? Do you feel like you have blown it with God in your life at some point? Are you discouraged with where your relationship with God is or isn't? If you feel that way, then you are right to turn to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are very helpful for us in this regard. And you've come to the right book in the Bible. This isn't the only book you could turn to, but Zechariah is helpful because, well, for one thing, Zechariah is 
the longest of the minor prophets, 14 chapters. And if you were re- to read it out loud, which I encourage you to do sometime, or maybe go online and listen to it, and, and just take one, one, 30 minutes of your time to read it out loud. 30, sorry, about 35 minutes of your time to read the whole book out loud. And it's a good thing to do that. If you've never done it in one sitting, it's very helpful. But this is one of these books that's, in my opinion, is probably the most obscure of the minor prophets. It's, frankly, it's, some of it's difficult to understand. But I'll remind you, as we looked uh, last week at the book of Haggai, that uh, just like Haggai, Zechariah began prophesying around that time in, in, in the 500 B.C.s, that's before Christ. And just like Haggai, he exhorted the Jews to uh, return, as, as they returned from exile uh, to the city of Jerusalem, to get on with the rebuilding of the temple of the Lord. They started the rebuilding of the temple, but they, uh, as a result of a little bit of opposition, they gave up, and they, they started doing other things, and they neglected what God said has, should have been their number one priority, which was Him. The rebuilding of the temple of the Lord was showing their priority that God had first place. And through a series of eight visions, two sermons, and two oracles in this book, God used Zechariah to tell the people that they would have a second chance. Many of them probably felt that God had given up on them, that God had abandoned them because of their sin. They, that's the reason they were exiled. And maybe, they, maybe even though they, they had had the decree from Cyrus to come back to Jerusalem, uh, still many of them felt that God had given up on them and there would be no second chance. The good news is, that God does give second chances. And we're going to look at this book in three natural sections that we see taking place in this. And we're going to use those three natural sections as the outline uh, for the sermon today. Now, I don't have a PowerPoint, in case you're wondering, for today. There's not, really wasn't much I could put on there. But think, think through this with me, because we see in the first six chapters, there's eight visions eight visions in the first six chapters, and they are describing the second chance that God would give through his rule. In chapter 7 and 8, they are, are, they are comprised of two sermons, and they're describing the second chance that God would give through his word. And then chapters 9 through 14, they're made up of two oracles, and they're describing the second chance that God would offer through his son. So let's take those, those three natural sections, three natural, divinely inspired uh, sections here and use those as our outline today. And so I pray as we study this book that we will discover what second chance God may have in store for us. Not just for the Israelites, but for us today. Number one, we see here that God will give a second chance through his rule. God will give a second chance through his rule. And as we saw in Haggai, life for the Jews in the last part of the 6th century B.C. probably probably felt very disjointed and uncertain for them. Especially in their relationship with God. They were back in the land of Judah. Uh, Many of them were back in the city of Jerusalem. But it was easy to wonder whether God would re-own them as his special people. 
But it was easy for them to think that way. After all, uh, he had exiled them to Babylon. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, destroyed Judah, destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, killed thousands of people, took many exiles back to Babylon. And it was, it was just it was all drama, if you will. It was done in a dramatic fashion. And so many of them probably thought, will God give us a second chance? And some, we, we see here from the, the book's opening words, it sounds as if, he were, as if he would give them a second chance. Let's look at the first couple verses here. Zechariah chapter 1, let's start in verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now if you look at verse 3, we'll stop there for a moment, but if you look at verse 3, you see the basic command of this entire book. The basic command here of the book of Zechariah is, according to verse 3, return to me. That's what God says. And if you see that, I hope you'll see that it, it implies a second chance, doesn't it? It implies a second chance. God is, is saying, yes, you blew it, and I, I sent the Babylonians to conquer you, and I sent many of you into exile, but God is saying... I give you a second chance, return to me, he says, and then I will return to you. So obviously, I think it's implying a second chance. Now let's think about the big picture here of the first six chapters. And by the way, we don't have time to read the whole book of Zechariah. I encourage you this afternoon or sometime this week to do so. So we're, we're just going to get the big picture. But let's think about this first section, the first six chapters. They're presented as a series of eight visions. And I confess that by themselves, the visions are, are very difficult to understand. <laughs> if you've ever read them, you, you might even find them quite strange. Uh, well, at least I do. God obviously gave these visions to Zechariah to make a point, And it's our responsibility to try to understand what is God's point with those eight visions. Usually... I, at least I find it helpful to look at subheadings. Uh, if you have a Bible that has subhead, uh, subheadings, uh, mine doesn't in this one here, but if, if you have one or a study Bible that does, look at those subheadings and, 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 and try to get the big picture of those six chapters. Well, I, I've done that, and I find it helpful, quite frankly. If you don't have any subheadings, let me just read you the subheadings of the first six chapters. 
in chapter 1, starting in verse 7, it is the man among the myrtle trees. Starting in chapter 1, verse 18, four horns and four craftsmen. Number three, a man with a measuring line. Number four, clean garments for the high priest. Chapter three. The golden lampstand and the two olive trees. Chapter five, the flying scroll. The end of chapter five, the woman in a basket. Chapter six, four chariots. (laughs) You say, uh, I don't find that helpful at all. (laughs) Uh, Well, if you, if you look at any one of these, uh, these, these, these visions here given to Zechariah, on their own, they might be a bit confusing. But if you try to get a pattern, what's, what's taking place in, in amongst all eight of these visions, I think you'll find it helpful. Oh, now, this isn't original with me. Somebody else directed me to uh, <clears throat> various commentators have thought of these things deeper than I could ever. So let me, let me just share a few things that I've, that I've read as I was trying to understand this. As I said, a good way to try to understand this is look, look for patterns. In the Hebrew scriptures, a, a story's climax often comes at the end, at, which it often does in English literature as well. And uh, sometimes they do that in movies. Sometimes they'll do that in novels or various poems. Uh, you'll, you'll see the story building and building and building and building, and it comes to the end, and, and the climax goes, boom! Sometimes that happens. But in Hebrew literature, there can also be the structure where the climax occurs in the middle of the story. You, you, you've got, if, if you picture a storyline going like a mountain, and at the top of the mountain you've got the pinnacle, right? Think of that as the climax. The top of the mountain is the climax, the pinnacle. Well, many commentators have, have said what, what's going on here in these visions, these eight visions in the first six chapters is, the storyline goes like a mountain, and at the top, right in the middle, is the climax. I think that's probably what's going on. And if you look at the six chapters, you got the the middle two visions, chapter four and in, in chapter four and five, they're both pointing to someone. And in this case, they're both pointing to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the climax of these visions, if you will. And you say, well, what are these about? We don't have time to read all the, the visions, but chapter 4, or sorry, the fourth vision is about the high priest Joshua. We read about him earlier, chapter 3, that is. He is covered with the filth of the people, and he obviously needed to be cleaned, and he was clean. Cha- uh, uh, sorry, the fifth vision is about God's everlasting presence being restored to Israel through the temple. Uh, when it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. We talked a little bit about him last week in Haggai. Uh, He was the governor of the land, and uh, he was pointing, according to Matthew chapter 1, remember Matthew 1 shows that Zerubbabel is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So Zerubbabel is pointing to Jesus Christ. He is in that renewed line of David. But there's a second pattern going on here as well. There's multiple patterns going on here. So let me show you a second one. The the first and the last vision also have a pattern. So we we saw the middle has a pattern, visions 4 and 5, but the first and the last, number 1 and 8, also have a pattern. And the pattern is that there are four horses, 
God sends these four horses out, and they go throughout the earth, and then they return back and they report peace. So that is the common denominator, if you will. That is the common thing. Four horses go out throughout the whole earth and bring back a report of peace. In the first vision, they report the peace that exists before the Lord judges the earth and the nations. And then in the last vision, the horses report the peace that follows the coming of the Messiah. So they're not exactly the same, but, but there are some similarities there. And then there's a third pattern. <laughs> uh, now, I'm not talking about Bible codes here, okay? Uh, um, I don't want you to think I'm going weird on you or anything, but, but we see in visions 2, 3, 6, and 7, together they're picturing the defeat of all opposition to God's rule, both externally and internally. So all opposition, whether it's external or internal, is being defeated in those visions. So in short, chapter or sorry, vision 8 presents a picture of the whole earth at peace, under the rule of God's anointed priest and king. And you say, well, who is he? He is the perfect priest and king, of course, Jesus Christ. The only way that Israel or this world will ever have peace is through Jesus Christ. They will, the world's going to talk about peace until he comes and truly brings peace. Now, what does this mean for the Christians, though? If you're a Christian, you need to ask the question, what does this mean for you? Well, mainly it means we have hope. We have hope. It means that we will never encounter circumstances too great for this God to handle. We see a God who is sovereign. We see a God who is in control. He reigns supreme over all of his creation. He is, bringing, he is accomplishing his purposes. And so, my friend, know that the basis of your hope is not in yourself, Many of the Israelites may have been looking to themselves, hoping that, uh, you know, hey, we built, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, we rebuild the temple, and we, you know, we, we get our vineyards all set, and we get crops growing, and, 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 and we have children and grandchildren, and, and then we'll be set, and we'll have hope and peace. No, <laughs> that's not how it works. Know that the basis of your hope is not in yourself. Our hope is in who God is what he has done and what he has promised to do. And this is why we need to give ourselves, my friends, to studying God's word. My friend, do you study the truth about God in the scriptures? Do you? Do you study the scriptures to know God and love him? Do you give yourself to it? Do you give the time, the effort, the, 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 the sweat and the tears and the and the time needed to do so. Do you carefully observe God's ways with you? Are your eyes open to that? And as you read the Bible, do you carefully do these things that God tells you to do? When God says, do this, do you make a point in your life to do what he says to do? And when God says, avoid these things that he forbids you from doing, do you make a purpose? Do you purpose in your heart as Daniel did? that I'm not going to do that? I'm not going to go there? I'm not going to do that? Do you? do you? Or do the words of the scripture come in one ear and out the other? As James 1 talks about, are you, are you a forgetful hearer of the word? Well, this kind of studiousness should mark us as God's people. 
We should be studious people. We should be known as people who love God's word, whose hearts are inclined to God's word, praying that God would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from his word. I mean, sometimes our congregation has been accused of being a studious group. I don't know about you. I, I, I take that as a compliment, not as an insult, <laughs> although it is meant to be an insult to me. Now, why would I say that? Well, this studiousness is, is evident in many ways in our church life. Uh, some have noticed this, and, and some don't like it, some do, and I hope this is why you're here. But consider just one of the ways that we see the studiousness evident in our church life. Number one, this sermon evidences the studiousness of our church life. Our church gives a great amount of time in our public gatherings to the, the studying of the Word of God, and the sermon is, is rightfully given a prominent role in the weekly gathering of the church. That's intentional. The Word of God is given a prominent role in the midweek Bible study. The Word of God is given a prominent role in the ladies' Bible studies and in the men's Bible studies. That's intentional. That's not a mistake or done by accident. Now, all the studiousness should not encourage pride in us. Sometimes it does. Sometimes we, we become proud because we know uh, lots of facts about the Bible, and some people get proud because they can win every time they play Bible trivia. That is not the point of studying the Bible. <laughs> Rather, it should uh, help to develop humility in us. The study of who God is and who we are in scriptures should expose us, and, it, and we should have, it should have the effect it had on Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Isaiah said, woe is me. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. He says, and I am undone. That's the effect the word of God should have on us. We shouldn't become proud. It should develop humility in us. And the study of who God is and who we are should expose us and show the difference between us and God. And so, as a result, the only right response should be humility. As you see, as you see a God who is holy, he is distinct, unique, and separate from his creation, and we see us as sinners, well, that should develop humility. Well, in, in addition to humility, studiousness should also lead to a confident hope in God. As you know who God is, you see his ways, you see who he is, what he's promised, and what he's, he's going to do. Well, for me, that gives me a confident hope. I see a God who's made promises, and I see a God who has kept promises, and I see a God who is going to keep more promises yet to come. Well, the second section of the book teaches us that God will give us a second chance through his word. We see God gives a second chance through his rule. We see a God who is sovereign. He's in charge. He, he reigns supreme over his creation. But we also see a God who is going to give us a second chance through his word. And this is what we learn in these two sermons of chapter 7 and 8. Both of which, by the way, begin with the same phrase. Turn to chapter 7. Let me show you. Don't take my word for it. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. You'll see... You'll see the common denominator here. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that 
the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Notice, the word of the Lord came. Now look at chapter 8, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord, or the word of the Lord of hosts came. That is the, the common thing here in these two sermons. The word of the Lord came. The first message in chapter 7, which um, we haven't read yet, so let's read that first. Chapter 7. Let's read this first sermon, okay? Chapter 7, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. Now in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev. When the people sent Shirazur, or however you say his name, with Regem, Melech, and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord, and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priest, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those seventy years, did you really fast for me, for me? By the way, the seventy years, referring to the time in exile. So God is saying, while you were in exile, did you really fast for me? That's a good question. Is it wrong to fast? No. They were doing the right thing. God is questioning their motive. Okay. Verse 6. When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Again, he's questioning their motive. Why do you do what you do? Verse 7. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous? And the south and the lowland were inhabited? Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice, show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. By the way, footnote, they were not all teenagers. Okay, Teenagers often act this way, though, don't they? But even those of us as adults obviously can act this way, and God shows that they did. They refused to heed. They didn't want to do it. Shrugged their shoulders, sign of defiance stop their ears, almost like plugging their ears, so that they could not hear. Look at verse 12. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all nations, which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. <clears throat> that thus ends the first message 
the first sermon. And in this first message, which we just read here, it's looking back. It's explaining why God sent the people of Judah into exile. Did you notice why? Why God sent them into exile? What, what's going on here is that this, this passage here is God is interpreting Israel's history. He is pointing to their disobedience to his demands as the result of their destruction and exile. That's why God did what he did. Their disobedience caused this. In a deliberate contrast, by the way, we come to chapter 8. This second sermon is, is not looking back as chapter 7 was. But the second sermon in chapter 8 is looking forward, if you will, and it's, it is describing what God will do for Israel. In short, he's going to give them a new beginning, a fresh start. Praise God for a God who believes in second chances. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor I am zealous for her, says the Lord. I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, Will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Let's stop there. walks about this earth seeking whom he may devour, the Bible says. So, but anyway, we see here in chapter 7 that God gave this inspired uh, interpretation, if you will, of Israel's history. And he, he let them know that they were exiled because they refused to heed God's word, and they, they heard it, they didn't want to listen, and they didn't obey it. We saw that in chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12, they refused to heed, they shrugged their shoulders, they stopped their ears so they could not hear, they made their hearts like flint. By the way, flint is stone, very hard. They refused to hear the law and the words which the Lord of the hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. And so my friend, let me ask you a question here. What have you been refusing to hear in God's word? Have you been... Like the Israelites? Are, are, does this describe you in any way? You refuse to heed God's word? Shrug your shoulders, plug your ears, and as God is speaking, you say, I'm not listening. Ever done that? I have. More, way more times than I want to admit. 
every one of us must give ourselves to answering this question. It's an important question. We need, to, we need reality checks. We need to honestly have God search our hearts, show us the, the evilness, the wickedness in our hearts. And as we think about this question, God helped Israel to see the perversity of their hearts. That was a good thing. We may not like it. <laughs> they didn't like it. You may not like it when God shines his light of his word on your hearts, showing the evilness of your ways. They didn't like it. But you too can use God's word to find sin in your life. And when God illuminates that sin, what do you need to do with it? Confess it. Repent of it. Forsake it. And in order to do this, we need to listen to God's word, first of all. That's where it starts. Listen to God's word. Did you notice chapter 7, verse 11? They refuse to heed. There's where... There's where the problem started. They refused to heed. And so we got to listen to God's word because this is how God is going to begin to break us loose from our sin and our wrong affections. In order for God's word to shape our hearts, we, number one, we need to be correctable. We need to be moldable like a piece of clay. God wants you to be like a soft piece of clay. He can mold and, and, and shape you as he wishes. Are you like that? Or are you like that stubborn piece of clay that God has to, to, to get rid of the hard pieces and, and, and throw it on the ground and start over with a new piece? The problem is, though, as you think about this, as, as we need to be correctable and moldable, the problem is we don't like correction. We don't like to be corrected. We don't like God's word to correct us. We don't like God to correct us. And we certainly don't like it when another sinner comes and corrects us. But you know what? When that happens, it bears good fruit. These middle chapters of Zechariah clearly teach that God values both truth and love. Yes, we need to value truth. Yes, we need to value love. But they are not mutually exclusive. They are the same. They come together, truth and love. And you say, well, how can our church cultivate such love and truth-telling? How? Well, here's a few ideas for you to think about. Number one, just think about this, as we try to apply the word here. Number one, we can commit to being honest or actively honest with one another by confessing our sins. Now, the person you go and confess your sin to is not able to forgive you of your sins. That's not the point. Okay? Uh, we don't believe in human priest, you know, going to confession booths and confessing your sin to some priest and him able to absolve you of your sin. That's not what I'm saying. But James talks about confessing our sins to one another. By the way, that's a command, not an option. You have to do that. It's helpful. We all have sins. We all have shortcomings. We all have struggles. And if we would just get honest with one another, it would be helpful. Too many of us are infected, though, by sin-coddling, encouragement-starving individualism. Did you hear me? We are starved by individualism. It happens amongst Christians also, not just the unsaved of this world. 
And by individualism, I just mean this, this go it alone, I don't need anybody else, all I need is God and my Bible. Yes, God is more than enough, don't get me wrong here. But God loves his church, he designed the church as a corporate entity, and for believers to be a part of a church, committed to one another, loving one another, truth-telling to one another, confessing our sins to one another. That's not a mistake. It's intentional. And so I exhort you to break out of your individualism, your isolationism, and obey the one another commands of Scripture. Yes, they're commands. There's heaps of them. You cannot fulfill those to the universal body of Christ. They're only able to be fulfilled within a local church. And so I call you to be, uh, get rid of your individualism, your isolationism, be committed to this local church, and obey the one another commands. Number two, let's get practical. Read biographies of heroic people who showed courage and bravery in how they loved and told the truth. There's some back there in the church library. Use the church library. And if, when you've exhausted that, please come to me because I, I got dozens more that I'm happy to share with you. All right? You don't have to spend lots of money. But read biographies. Healthy churches have libraries, and healthy churches use the libraries. So you say, well, I don't get it. Why read biographies? I don't see any point. Well, if you don't see any point, I'd love to talk with you about that more. But here's how I find them helpful. Other people's lives challenge me to live a godly life. They're exhorting me and encouraging me to live like Christ. Number three, we should also learn to pray for other members of the church. The Bible tells us to pray for one another. Do you? Prayer helps to stir up a godly concern and love for one another. If you have a struggle in loving somebody then you need to get to know that person and pray with them. Find out what their struggles and their sins are and pray for them. It's hard to hate somebody whom you pray for. <laughs> if you don't know that, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you need to try it. Okay. Well, let's turn our attention to the last six chapters of Zechariah quickly. What do they teach us? Number three, God will give a second chance through his son. God gives second chances, and he primarily gives it through his son. The last six chapters are divided into two oracles. Both oracles begin with the promise of judgment on Israel's enemies. Again, there's, there's some common patterns going on here, and, and, and I hope you find this helpful. But both oracles are pointing to one who would come. Of course, remember this is B.C., before Christ. Christ hadn't come to earth at this time. And in the second oracle, or I should say in the first oracle, this, this one who would come is called Israel's king, the Lord, Yahweh, and a shepherd. Those are several descriptions in the first oracle. In the second oracle, he is called the one they have pierced, a shepherd. So in many ways, these oracles are similar, and based on those descriptions, hopefully you understand who it's talking about. In some ways, though, these oracles are different. Let me point out some of the differences. The first oracle ends... Uh, now, here's, here's one of the same things, though. Uh, the first oracle ends with the divine shepherd king being detested by the flock. 
In the second oracle, this figure is rejected. So that's, that's the similar part. But the language implies here that he dies. The one whom they have pierced. I mean, that kind of gives it away, doesn't it? So the language implies he dies. And if you look at chapter 12, you can see this language for yourself. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. It says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on him whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Look at chapter 13, verse 7. Chapter 13, verse 7. Again, you see how it's implied that this one dies. Look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. So as bad as that sounds, and it does sound bad, the second oracle, praise God, doesn't end with the divine shepherd king uh, uh, being rejected. In fact, it ends with good news. In chapter 14, the prophet describes a celebration as the day of the Lord comes and a consummation of, of Christ's millennial kingdom takes place in chapter 14. Now, I know some of you don't believe in a millennial kingdom, but some of us do. As you look at chapter 14, I believe this is referring to Christ's literal 1,000-year time on this earth. You see how the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem dramatically changes. You just read it for yourself. It's quite interesting. Uh, we're not going to read it right now. But we see a time of celebration. Okay, hopefully we can all agree on that. And the one question that needs to be answered here is, why do these last two oracles include this, this interesting twist in the plot? You say, what twist? You have the divine shepherd king. On the one hand, he's rejected. And Zechariah doesn't answer as clearly as the New Testament does, but it does, it does help point to the answer, which obviously we see in the New Testament. The answer is clearly presented in the New Testament. Now, if you look at uh, chapter 13, verse 1, um, well, let's, let's just start here. We'll see, we'll see how it's pointing to the answer, how, how we see this twist in the plot. We have the, the divine shepherd king is rejected, but yet some good happens as a result of this. Okay, look at chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. I hope you can see how it's pointing to, to a glorious celebration one day here. Because through Zechariah, there's this clear awareness of sin. There's a clear awareness of our need to be cleansed from that sin before we can have fellowship with a holy God. It is impossible to have fellowship with a holy God. It is impossible to get to heaven on our own because we are sinful. So praise God, he sent someone who would cleanse us from all of our sin. This someone, by the way, is God himself. He came in human flesh as Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical person. And I say that because there are people out there attacking the historical Jesus as if he didn't exist. He did. And the whole calendar centers around him. <laughs> Which is why they 
they've changed it now to Common Era, by the way. CE, Common Era. Anyway, the whole calendar resolves around, revolves around Christ. And so his death, uh, he, by the way, he was the one here who was struck down. He is the one who was pierced. He, in his death, was the death that, that you and I should have died, but he died it for you. He took your place. He was the substitute. Christ died as the substitute for everybody who will ever repent of their sins and turn to him. Therefore, the most important thing that you could do today, my friend, is not to detest, not to reject this Christ, not to reject him as your Savior, but to love him, accept him, take him as your own, turn to him as your only hope. So take this death for your death, take his life for your life. My friend, if you haven't done that, you don't have any hope. The only hope is you have is to turn to Christ, take him. Without him, you don't have hope. So one of the most commented on verses in all of the Old Testament, by the way, occurs in chapter 12. Many people comment on this verse. Chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Consider what God is saying in this verse for a moment, okay? Because again, there's, there's misconceptions on what this is talking about here. It says, they will look on me. Now, my Bible has a capital M. Look on me. And by the way, in Hebrew, that's in the future tense. So it's appropriate, the way it's translated here, to say, they will look on me. That's appropriate, because it's future tense. Now, the next phrase says, whom they pierced. That's past tense. Now, when I first learned that, I, I was scratching my head thinking, okay, what's going on here? Okay, they will is future, whom they pierced is past tense. Who is this talking about? I don't get it. It's referring to Jesus Christ. But why is they will look on me, future tense, whom they pierced is past tense? Well, here's the best explanation I was able to find, that they pierced, uh, well, first of all, let me just say this. It's not referring to Yahweh, okay? It's not all capital letters, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. That's not who it's referring to. Uh, Yahweh is a spirit. <laughs> you can't pierce a spirit. The only way something can be pierced is it has to have flesh. This is some, someone who has flesh. Okay? Who had flesh. <laughs> it has to be referring to Jesus Christ now, but how could they look in the future on this one whom they have pierced and this one whom they killed in the past? How can that be? He's coming back, exactly, that's the point. He is coming again. Only if he, this person has life. He has to have life and he has to return. The one whom they pierced in the past, my friend, is coming again. That's what it's saying. So does God give second chances? Well, he certainly did for the people of Israel. And if he did for the people of Israel, he will do for you as well. Only 
It is not really a second chance that God gives, if you think about it, though. Because nothing is uncertain when God is involved in it, is he? There is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as a happenstance. There is no such thing as good fortune. There is no such thing like that. Because when God's involved, there is no second chance. God is in control. And through the promise of his reign, through the promise of his word, through the promise of his son, God claims his people for himself. And even when we tend to throw God away, just as Israel did, God promises to return. God says, if you return to me, I will return to you. And the appeal that God made to his people in in chapter 1, verse 3, by the way, that's the sum of the book, if you will. He said, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me and I will return to you. That sums up the whole book of Zechariah. That's the appeal that God made to his people. So what about you? What about you, my friend? Do you need a new opportunity with God? Do you feel like you've blown it? Can, can, can you think of a time when you say, well, I, I blew it, or uh, you know, maybe I've sinned so many times against God, I, I just don't see how God could, could ever give me a second chance. I don't see how God could forgive me. I've sinned against him so many times. Maybe you think you've broken that, the unpardonable sin. I don't know. Maybe you feel like there's just no way God could give me a new opportunity. It's impossible. Maybe you feel like you need a new life. (laughs) Well, the good news is, my friend, God gives new life. God gives new opportunities. And so if you feel like you need a new opportunity, if you feel like you need this new life, my friend, run to God. Return to Him. He is your only hope. Let's pray.